All right, you ready to get in God's Word? Let's open up to Revelation chapter 16, if you will. As we continue looking at this fascinating book together here on Sunday morning. And the title of my message this morning is Armageddon. Armageddon, what a word. It's ominous when you consider it. This word is used synonymously for the judgment of God, global catastrophe, the final war to end all wars, and a bad movie with Bruce Willis in it back in the 90s. Well, <laughs> Jeff cried at the end. I can't believe they're going to leave him. The word Armageddon has been used this way, and rightfully so, throughout the centuries. And within the course of chapter 16, we are introduced at the end to that word. But we find a principle that stands out, stands forward in our text, and that is this. If the love and the goodness of God does not draw one to repentance, certainly the judgment of God will not. For Romans 2.4 tells us, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, Paul asks, His forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The judgment of God is poured out in its finality here in chapter 16. As John lists for us the seven last bowls of judgment that will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, specifically the end of the last three and a half years, the great tribulation period. So let us begin in verse 1 together. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go! And pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. Notice with me for a moment. The temple that is found in heaven. Heaven is a place that so many say they want to go to. And yet, when you begin to just explore that a little bit further and ask them to qualify why they desire to go to heaven... Often it is simply answered by the opposite or the juxtaposition. Well, I don't want to go to hell. Well, I'm glad. But why do you want to go to heaven? It's amazing how little people know about heaven. In fact, heaven isn't even spoken of very often in the New Testament, if you look at it in the sense of the number of verses that refer to it. And yet we long for it, and rightfully so. Our desire to go to heaven, isn't it amazing, 55 and my voice still cracks. you think by now I'd hit puberty, okay? People want to go to heaven, but not knowing why they want to go to heaven. Heaven is a place that God resides. It's not my desire to go to heaven, it is my desire to be with my Lord, and He happens to be in heaven. Eventually, heaven will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. 
It'll be uh, replaced with the New Jerusalem as we get to the end of Revelation. Two of the most fascinating chapters, 21 and 22, will be introduced to these things. But this is what we long for. This is what we look forward to. The greatest things that we have in this earth, and we have great things, the beauty of the nature of the earth, some of the blessings that the Lord has given us, such as the institution of marriage, being able to know Him and to walk with Him on a daily basis in and through this world. These are all blessings, but they pale in comparison to what heaven is. In fact, even the Hebrew writer realized that earth was a mere copy of what heaven was eventually going to be. For the writer of Hebrews writes in verse 4 of chapter 8, he says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, notice, the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator, speaking of Christ, of a better covenant, which has established, which has been established on better promises. This is a mere copy. Yes, when God completed the creation of all things, he says, it's all good. And he looked at it. But if you notice with me in your Bible, if you pick up your Bible, and hopefully you have a paper Bible, notice here that this page, he created everything. Okay? This page, everything is all good. This page, we fall, and it takes this much to restore us, let me get to it, I won't even include the index, this much to get us all back to what he, where we originally started, okay? You've just gone through the whole Bible in three minutes. That's what it's all about, the redemption of God's fallen individual and fallen creation. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. Notice with me. C.S. Lewis wrote, he says, All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of heaven. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they were caught in your ear. Lewis went on to say, say If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I have made uh, for another. I have been made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a, a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures uh, were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. We're longing for heaven. We desire to be with our God. But all that God 
done through the tabernacle and the temple in which he created in the Old Testament was meant to be a copy, a shadow, a glimpse of what heaven will be like. And ultimately that distance that we have been kept from God due to our, our sin has been now justified in and through Christ, allowing us closeness. Draw near to God, James writes, and He shall draw near to you. That division, that separation has all been alleviated in and through Jesus Christ. But now the time of judgment has come, where God's wrath is poured out upon this earth like we have never seen before. Notice with me in verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and foul and loathsome sores came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These, of course, are the individuals from Revelation 13 and Revelation 14, the ones that have taken the mark of the beast, the ones that have pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist. These individuals will be held accountable for what they have done. And in verse 3, then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. What we'll see here in the seven bold judgments is similarities to the same judgments that God poured out upon Egypt in the release of his people from Pharaoh's bondage. Again, now, instead of dealing locally, judging locally, he is now judging globally and holding the whole world accountable, as we will see. In verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due. Many criticize God concerning the subject of judgment. That God in some way is unfair for judging a sinful world. Now the Bible is replete with verses that speak on the wrath of God. But again, as I said last week, many like to fly over those verses. Like, you know, you fly from here to California, there's those flyover states, you know. Like, people like to fly over these verses. We don't like to consider this aspect of God. And they mistakenly think that if God is a God of love, then eventually He'll allow everyone into heaven. That His love supersedes the other attributes and the characteristics of God. That his love supersedes his holiness. His love supersedes his righteousness. His love supersedes justice. But God is not a God of that nature. Each one of his attributes, his characteristics, are equal in their division and are subjected to one another. 
God cannot simply overlook the person's sin and allow them into His presence simply because He loves them. When we talk about the love of God, we must remember that yes, God loves us unconditionally. And I believe that He loves the whole world. And why do I believe that? Because John said that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whomever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, God demonstrated His love in a very unique and special way. It wasn't emotional. It was objective. It wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't subjective. It was ultimate, meaning that it fulfilled all of the promises in which He had made in the Old Testament to His people and to His creation. It was purposed. God says, I love you by sending His only begotten Son to die on your behalf. That's the way God screamed into the annals of history, I love you. You know, God didn't owe us anything. Let's be honest, right? After we fell, God could have simply said, you know, (laughs) they blew it. They screwed up. Hey, uh, Michael, let's, uh, let's just start all over again. In fact, he almost wanted to do that. Moses went in and petitioned on the behalf of God's people. God didn't owe us anything. But in His goodness and in His grace and in His mercy and according to His foreknowledge, He set in motion from the foundations of the world knowing that His creation would fall and He already had in place a rescue plan. He came after us. He came down for us. And so when people talk about the judgment of God, I ask them this simple question. What more could have God done on your behalf? What more could He do but to come down to rescue you, He Himself in the person of Jesus Christ? What could He have done? See, God is holy, and therefore He must hold sin accountable. If we were wronged and a crime was committed against us, and we finally had our day in court, and the individual who perpetrated the crime against us was caught and brought before the court, and we were there also, looking for the judge to hold him accountable for what he had done against us. If that judge would have simply said, well, I'm sorry, but I love the defendant and therefore I'm going to let him off uh, with you know, a warning and I'm going to just let him free and not hold him accountable for what had happened. Where is the justice in that for the person who is harmed? Today in our judicial system, we seem to be more concerned about the defendant than we are about the victim. And that needs to change. But God must, due to his character, hold sin accountable. And here they declare the righteousness of God for doing so. The justice of God for doing so. The penalty due for what they have done. We may feel that people are getting away with things here in our world, and it may be very discouraging to us, because it does seem that justice is skewed in our world today. 
that there are those who seem to escape continuously our justice system when others seem to be almost persecuted by it. And it can be very disheartening to see. And we know that that is one of the first indications of a society that is fracturing. But ultimately, as a Christian, I know that God will hold each and every person accountable for what they have done. For those who find themselves in Christ Jesus, it will be Jesus Christ as our advocate, as our propitiation, the one who stands between us and the Father and simply says to the Father, they are one of mine. The Father looks through Christ and through Christ we are blameless, our sins have been forgiven, and we have been clothed with his righteousness. That was a great place for an amen. You guys are really, really slacking, man. Oh, it's after the fact now. If I got to tell you, you know, it's just like, come on, you know. This is all about Jesus, right? But in other individuals will have to stand there completely on their own righteousness to find that the standard is perfection that no one could obtain. And God will hold them guilty. In fact, the Bible tells us that the one sitting on that throne of judgment, that white throne, is Jesus himself. Why? Because it was Jesus himself who came and died and rose on the third day that we may be justified in and through him. You know, when God adopts us, I'm sorry, when God redeems us, okay, it's not only that he, he, he washes away those sins that we have committed up until that point. He deals with the sins past, present, and future. And then he wraps us in his righteousness. Because I think I read somewhere that our righteousness is like filthy rags unto the Lord. Translating, use toilet paper. Sorry, no, that's disgusting. But Christ's righteousness is perfect. And so when we fail, and we will fail, and when we fall, and we will fall, God does not condemn us. He, like a loving father, picks us up once again, brushes us off. If we would just come to him and just say, Lord, forgive me, I blew it. I screwed up. And then the words of John ring in my heart and mind. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My dad was very patient with me learning how to ride a two-wheeler. Of course, I started out like every other kid on the block with training wheels, okay? And when I finally got to take them off when I was 16, I was so happy. I was so happy. But I remember my dad trying to help me ride a two-wheeler. And when I used to fall, and I used to... Uh, you know, just wipe out. Even at 15, he didn't condemn me. I'm kidding, of course. I was actually 13. No, I'm kidding. He picked me up, brushed me off. He says, get back on and let's go again. I remember that. And I remember that. I think of that when I think of our God. Our Heavenly Father that Paul said we could call Abba, Dad. And instead of 
pushing us further down. He picks us up. He lifts us up. You know why? Because he loves you. He loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. And here's the thing. He loves you so much, he loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. So he desires to pick you up, to restore you, to put you back on that bike and get you riding once again. But he will hold those accountable who have rejected his son. In verse 7, And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord, even though these judgments are being poured out upon the earth, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This is your righteousness displayed by holding those accountable who have rejected you. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Just this week I read an article in the news about a document found in the Biden White House that stated that they were looking to block the sun. The article's headline was, Biden administration gets burned after considering a study to block the sun. The article went on to say, a White House document that revealed the Biden administration is considering studying blocking the sun's rays to slow climate change, spark surprise and mockery on social media. The types of geoengineering methods the Biden administration is reportedly considering are stratospheric aerosol injections and marine cloud brightening. What could go wrong with that, right? It's not like the sun is needed to grow things. It's not like we don't get, it doesn't give us vitamin D or anything. But we're going to try to block the sun to stop climate change. Well, according to this verse right here, it's not going to work. The hubris and the audacity of man. You know, what could go wrong with that, right? Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Really? Really? I know marijuana is legal, but you don't have to smoke it, man. Are you kidding me? But God said that as this fourth bowl is measured out, the world will be scorched by the sun itself. Notice with me at the end in verse 9, who has the power over these plagues, a word that is paralleled, of course, in Exodus, and they did not repent and give him glory. Now, I want to talk about this for a moment because this concerns me. Again, I began with the idea that it's the kindness and goodness of God that leads us to repentance. But the judgment of God has a tendency to harden a person's heart. I love what R.A. Torrey said. He said, I'm sorry, uh, Spurgeon said, The sun which melts hardened wax hardens clay at the same time. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. The same sun can melt wax 
or harden the clay. Spurgeon brought this out to say that the gospel message, like the sun, is going to have one of two effects on the person's heart. Now, I know all about melting wax. I never will forget. I don't think I saw my dad any more angry than he was this day. He finally got the new Buick LeSabre that he always wanted. He bought it. He was all happy with it. I mean, this thing was the size of an Abram tank back in the 1970s, okay? It was dark gold, black top. He was always washing it and waxing it and so forth. And he was so excited because he bought the car just prior to summer and was looking forward to it, taking it down to Florida for a summer vacation because he was, all, he was taking us all down to the happiest place on earth, Disney World. And as we were heading out, my, you could tell my dad was just all happy. You know, he's just, it's a small world after. As he's driving, I'm like, okay, wow. You know, I know the Dramamine is good, but really? Okay. And then we got down to Florida. And we pulled into the hotel. My dad says, okay, now put away all your stuff. We got to take the suitcases up to the room. For some reason, my dad always found a hotel that didn't have an elevator, and we had to carry our bags up three flights of stairs, okay? So we got everything into our room. We then went back down to the car. We went out to dinner because the next day we were hitting the Disney World. We pulled into the Disney World parking lot the next day, and as my dad parked his car, he made sure that we were the very last spot. I mean, I think we were in Disneyland parking for Disney World, okay? And as he's walking around the car, he's looking through the back window, and he's like, what the heck is that? What is that? And there was this pool of goo in his back window. See, my mom and dad had bought us a 64-pack of Crayola crayons, and we left it in the back window of the car, and it melted, and we had our own rainbow before it ever meant any of that. My dad was not happy in the happiest place on earth, and he looked at us, and he said, what were you thinking? And my sister said, we weren't. She was being honest. I'll never forget that. The look on my dad's face. I think he wanted to punch Mickey out the moment we walked into that place. His new car. But I think of Pharaoh. When Moses continuously came to Pharaoh in the vast number of uh, opportunities that God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to let the people go. If you notice in your, in your text that it'll say that Pharaoh rejected Moses' command, God's command through Moses, and as a result, it said Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And it continued on time after time until something changed. Where all of a sudden it went from Pharaoh hardened his heart against God to God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There seems to be a period of time that God will give an individual in hearing and rejecting the gospel, giving them the opportunity to come to saving faith. But when they have hardened their heart to a point of no return, and let me say this, only God knows where that is, okay? 
Only God knows what, where and when that is. He then solidifies that decision and hardens that person's heart. And that appears to what has happened here. As R.A. Tori wrote, he said, Pharaoh was not a man who wished to obey God. The whole account begins not with God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but with Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Let us be careful that we do not harden our heart against God. I want to take you to the scariest chapter in the Bible, and that's found in Romans chapter 1, if you turn there with me. Now, I know that's a, a big statement, because you may be saying, well, I, what we're reading is pretty scary. Let me, fi- let me show you the scariest chapter in the Bible. Some time ago, I did a message on Sunday morning entitled, When God Gives Up. It is based on Romans chapter 1. You can find it online if you'd like to listen to it. But starting in verse 18, and I just want to read these verses, and I want you to notice how many times God states that He has given someone up. Notice with me. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because... What may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changing the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies amongst themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was just due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent and proud, boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who know the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And the premise that I put forward in the message was, when does God give up? When does a nation harden their hearts against God to the point of no return? 
When does a nation finally come to the point where they say, God, we reject you? And try to pull and suppress the understanding and knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Taking down every uh, reminder of God's influence in the nation over the years and centuries. When does God give up? I don't know when that is. But he does give us some telltale signs. And notice with me that the sign that Paul gave us to indicate that God has given individuals over to a debased mind. Some would use the word reprobate mind. It's homosexuality and lesbianism. This is scary to me, okay? Because I desire to see people get saved. I know God desires people to get saved. His long-suffering is there so that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But there comes a moment in time when God says enough is enough. Individuals who know, but suppress that knowledge and unrighteousness. That frightens me. In fact, it terrifies me. But God is completely just in doing that. Now, I don't know if we're there yet or not as a nation. But regardless, God is still saving individuals, isn't he? And nothing is going to stop that. Nothing. As we come now to the fifth angel, in verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongue because of the pain. They blasphemed God of heaven because of their pain, their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Jesus warned us, Matthew 25, 30, he said that the unprofitable servant is cast into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is horrific and this is why we share Jesus with anyone who will listen. In verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up so that the way of the kings, notice that word, kings from the east, might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, who we know to be Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast, which we know to be the Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, of course, being the false prophet. And in verse 14, And they are the spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and who keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together in a place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. The term Armageddon comes from the word, the, the area of Israel called the Valley of Megiddo. We have a picture of it for you. And it is in this valley that the world will gather to come against the forces of the Antichrist, the ten nations that 
converge and follow the Antichrist by, uh, for his leading. It is at this place that his armies converge. Notice with me, it's plural, kings of the east. This valley has been found in the Bible to host many battles. Gideon defeated the Midianites there. Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites. King Saul was killed in the valley of Megiddo in his battle with the Philistines. For Napoleon himself said in 1799 that the, there is uh, no other place in the world that all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces in this vast plain. There is no place in the whole world more suitable for a war than this. It is the most natural battleground on all the earth. It is this place that the superpowers will gather. And these superpowers will be the ten nations that follow the Antichrist and the kings of the east. In Revelation chapter 9.16, we know that the kings of the east are able to muster 200 million uh, in number and bring them against the forces of the Antichrist. Now in 1997, China boasted of 352 million soldiers capable. And for years, people looked at that and said, it must be China. But here, the plurality, the kings of the East, must be noticed. And there's a new alliance forming in the world today that is becoming quite formidable. Formidable, excuse me. And that is the BRICS nations. The BRICS nations concerning Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The nations began to uh, bring their coalition together and cohesiveness together under the weight of the sanctions that the West placed upon Russia after Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine. And that's a story for another day, isn't it? But these BRICS nations, as one article headlined, and said the sensational pressure from the West is pushing Russia and China closer together, said Putin's aide. This is huge, guys. We have been warned for decades that the worst thing that could happen in the world is an alliance between Russia and China, and that now has occurred. The Russian prime minister Putin's aide said his country's bilateral ties with China stood to benefit and strengthen in the face of the pressures from the West. A large number of sanctions from the West that have been imposed on Russia over it, uh, ever since its invasion of Ukraine have put a strain on its economy and led the former Soviet Union to increasingly establish ties with China that has in its own strain ties and disputes with the Western countries like the United States of America. Now, this is serious because something happened that the world didn't anticipate. It was one thing for China and Russia to come together, and I think it was almost inevitable. But a third nation of huge size joined with them, the nation of India. This is enormous, guys, because what we are talking about is 20% of the population are now coming together. And the very first thing that they want to do to identify themselves is set forth a new currency, a threat to the reserve currency of the United States of America. We can operate in a debt, a continuous debt, because we are the reserve currency of the world. 
if you want to really scare yourself before you go to bed, read articles on what would happen if the United States was no longer the reserve currency in the world. Well, the BRICS nations this week announced the BRICS countries exploring a gold-backed currency potentially challenging the U.S. dollar's dominance. Now, why is this important? The dollar is no longer supported by gold. Nixon took us off the gold standard. It is what's called fiat currency. There's nothing really to it except the trust in the government behind the currency itself. And how are we doing in that arena? How scary is this? Well, the petrodollar is challenged in Saudi Arabia. More and more nations are gravitating towards the BRICS alliance, looking for a gold-backed currency, something that's more secure than the United States of America. Because you know what? Unlike our government, the world seems to be concerned that we are $32 trillion in debt. Can you imagine what the interest payment on that is? It's incredible. And they put it on their Visa card for miles. I'm kidding. Wow, you guys are really slow today. Guys, we're in trouble. And we keep kicking the can down the road and saying, you know what, the next generation will clean it up and the next generation... Really, that's the most irresponsible thing that we can do. The article went on to say that the introduction of a gold-backed currency by BRICS and its potential impact on cryptocurrencies and the global economy has generated significant interest. Amid rising tensions with Russia and China, news emerged this week, that is this past week, that the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are reportedly planning to introduce a gold-backed trading uh, currency potentially posing a, ch- a challenge to the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Wow, guys, man. Here it is. The kings of the East. Is it possible that it is those of India, China, and Russia that come from the East? We don't know. But it's interesting that the world is aligning as the Bible has stated. And let's read it out quickly in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out Oh, I'm sorry, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, out of heaven, saying, from the throne, saying, it is done. I think of those words that Christ shouted from the cross, to tell us die. It is finished. It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightning. And there was a great earthquake, such as a mighty and great earthquake, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And the great city was divided into three parts. This is Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell. And the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her a cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talon. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague uh, was exceedingly great. 
you and I need to remember that this is what's coming next. Now, I believe the church will be out. God will remove us before that time comes. And I know there are other brothers and sisters who don't agree with that, and I love them for it. But here's the deal. This time is coming. And we as Christians need to know that this is coming. And if we truly say that we love people, we need to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, What's left of human civilization is shaken to, its stone, to the Stone Age foundation, clearing the earth for the extreme makeover. Revelation describes nothing less at the end of the world as we know it. Everything about the earth, including its topo- to- top- gravi- uh, topography, will prepare the new regime, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. First, I wanted you to take away this today. There is much injustice in the world, and it, it appears that justice has been distorted to the point where the guilty are going free. But the psalmist writes to encourage us. He says in Psalm 73, 12 through 14, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastised every morning. Hey, they continue to get away with it. But God will hold them accountable. And the judgment of God is inescapable. Psalmist went on to say in that same psalm, verses 16 through 19, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in a slippery place. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. And they are utterly consumed with terrors. I want to close by answering a question that you may have this morning. What about the United States of America? Thank you for your time. I know we went a little bit longer. In this battle in Armageddon where Israel is confronted with the forces of the Antichrist and the kings of the East, why won't America just come to the rescue since we are supposedly Israel's greatest ally? America is not mentioned in the Bible. And we as Christians must finally adopt the realization it is not all about us here in America. The Bible goes on way before America was ever a nation. Do you know that there are gaps between chapters in the Bible that are longer in time than the existence of the United States of America? There are gaps 400 years long. We could fit in there almost twice. And yet we think everything revolves around America. It doesn't. It revolves around Israel. So what happens to the United States of America? Well, there are three possibilities people put forward. Number one, the United States may have just been decimated in a nuclear attack. I hope not. But there sure are fears of nuclear uh, war today. The United States might simply decline, number two, as a world power. As one wrote, he says, nations have shelf lives. Nations come and go historically, some more quickly than others. As Dr. Mark Hitchcock, one of my favorite professors from Dallas Theological Seminary, 
Pointed out in his book, Is America in Bible Prophecy, the, mighty, the might of the Babylonian Empire only lasted 86 years. The power of the Persian Empire did better, lasting 208 years. The glory of Greece was eclipsed after 268 years. Even mighty Rome ruled for almost 900 centuries. I'm sorry, nine centuries, excuse me. As of this writing, the United States is only 237 years old. That was written back in 2013. And counting, every nation will have a beginning, middle, and end. And then he wrote this in his observation. As the dollar gets weaker, other currencies become stronger. This was written 10 years ago. As China emerges as an economic power, things could change. And we could just simply diminish as a world power, fade like a shadow in the noonday sun. It has happened to countless other nations and could very possibly happen to us. And if it did... We might simply fall into line as one of the nations supporting the Antichrist himself. But there's a third option. There's a third option. This is the one I am praying for. That God sweeps across our nation once again as he has done in times past and brings a revival like we haven't seen before. Where God just moves and saves people one right after another. And in the wake of that, changing the whole course of our nation's future. Demonstrating to the world once again that this nation was founded on principles that are found in God's word. And the Judeo-Christian standard of morality and the context of a nation can be uh, substituted by no one other. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm looking forward to God doing. But we don't know what's going to happen next. All I can say is this. I want to be part of whatever God is going to do next, right? If God can save someone like me when I was 16 years old, He can save anybody. And I'd like to see Him do that over and over and over again, wouldn't you? But the revival starts in our hearts. We need to go before the Lord and just confess any sin that is hindering us from living a fully surrendered life to Him. We need to ask the Lord to forgive us of our apathy and carnality and complacency. We need to begin to once again dive into God's Word, spending time with Him in prayer, not to obtain or maintain our salvation, but to get to know Him and in it discover who He is. The love that He has for us. The plans and purposes that He has uh, formed us to fulfill perfectly and beautifully. This is what we need to seek if we are going to be effective for Him in these last days. You know, many think that we need to become like the world to reach the world. Jesus had just the opposite understanding and philosophy. He wanted to become so unlike the world that he would be a light in the darkness. And I don't know about you, but I think one of the safest things that we could ever do is be more like Jesus, right? Amen?